Jeremiah 50, verses 1 to 20. This is the word the Lord spoke through Jeremiah the prophet concerning Babylon and the land of the Babylonians. Announce and proclaim among the nations. Lift up a banner and proclaim it. Keep nothing back but say, Babylon will be captured, Baal will be put to shame, Marduk filled with terror. Her images will be put to shame and her idols filled with terror. A nation from the north will attack her and lay waste her land. No one will live in it. Both people and animals will flee away. In those days, at that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah together will go in tears to seek the Lord their God. They will ask the way to Zion and turn their faces toward it. They will come and bind themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray and caused them to roam on the mountains. They wandered over mountain and hill and forgot their own resting place. Whoever found them devoured them. Their enemies said, We are not guilty, for they sinned against the Lord, their verdant pasture, the Lord, the hope of their ancestors. Flee out of Babylon, leave the land of the Babylonians, and be like the goats that lead the flock. For I will stir up and bring against Babylon an alliance of great nations from the land of the north. They will take up their positions against her, and from the north she will be captured. The arrows will be like skilled warriors who did not return empty-handed. So Babylonia will be plundered. All who plunder her will have their fill, declares the Lord. Because you rejoice and are glad, you who pillage my inheritance, because you frolic like a heifer threshing grain and neigh like stallions, your mother will be greatly ashamed. She who gave you birth will be disgraced. She will be the least of the nations, a wilderness, a dry land, a desert. Because of the Lord's anger, she will not be inhabited, but will be completely desolate. All who pass Babylon will be abhorred. They will scoff because of all her wounds. Take up your positions around Babylon, all you who draw the, box, draw the bow. Shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Shout against her on every side. She surrenders, her towers fall, her walls are torn down. Since this is the vengeance of the Lord, take vengeance on her, do to her as she has done to others. Cut off from Babylon the sower, and the reaper with his sickle at harvest. Because of the sword of the oppressor, let everyone return to their own people. Let everyone flee to their own land. Israel is a scattered flock that lions have chased away. The first to devour them was the king of Assyria. The last to crush their bones was Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will punish the king of Babylon and his land as I punish the king of Assyria. But I will bring Israel back to their own pasture, and they will graze on Carmel and Bashan. Their appetite will be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and Gilead. In those days, at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for Israel's guilt, but there will be none, and for the sins of Judah, but none will be found, for I will forgive the remnant iceberg. Thanks, brother. Well read. Uh, we're heading towards the end of Jeremiah. Um, one quick thing to kind of um, begin, uh, before we begin, um, got an apology to make. Uh, we don't have OG graphics today in the PowerPoint. I've had to resort to handwritten uh, drawings. Uh, I didn't have time to put them together this morning because my wife Beth was having a scan and our 12-week-old baby is going well. So we'll be expecting number three um, in April. So thanks for the applause. Um, uh, but that's very exciting. And um, just thought, let you guys know about it. 
Um, so with that in mind, um, how about I pray and then we'll launch into today's talk. Our Father in heaven, thank you for another time uh, together, gathered as your people around the word of your son. Uh, we pray that as we hear it, it will change our hearts and move us to greater faith and greater works in your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's a complex argument uh, with a really simple application. Hopefully we'll track through uh, and we'll get there together. Uh, But let me begin by asking you a question. What do you think God is doing in the world? What is God doing in the world? Because if you're like me, you probably don't pay attention to the news. uh, But over the last few years, it's kind of been impossible not to. Uh, We have seen Russia invade Ukraine. Uh, We have seen famines in West Africa. We have seen the US almost implode over an election. COVID-19 has ripped through the world, killing millions. And to top it all off, Elon Musk bought Twitter. What on earth is God doing in the world? If you look out that vista of um, turmoil, it is entirely reasonable reasonable to ask that question. Now, now usually when somebody asks that question, though, they they answer it by looking to present events. And they try to discern the patterns and the hidden meanings of the things as they occur. But very rarely will somebody look back to ancient history to explain the mystery of the future. But that is what the book of Jeremiah tells us to do today. And it's precisely what God calls us to do if we are to understand what he is doing in his world. Uh, And if we want to find the reason behind the madness, the reason behind the suffering, the pain, the confusion, uh, just the random events of history and work out where it's all heading, we actually need to look backward and not forward. And when we do that... What we find in these words in Jeremiah is that God is doing two things in his world. God is judging the world and God is saving the world. And both of those things happen at the same time and both of those things happen through his appointed king, Jesus. Now, to understand how that can be, we've actually got to start all the way right at the beginning of Jeremiah and revisit something of what uh, the prophet is meant to be doing. And so you'll see there on your outlines, our first kind of subheading, uh, revisiting Jeremiah's commission. This is in chapter one of Jeremiah. Feel free to flip there in your Bibles if you want, but I have put it up on the screen because I have been feeling nice to you guys today. Um, If you remember, this is what it says. Uh, We see that before I formed you, this is God speaking to Jeremiah in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. That's the first thing that we see about Jeremiah's commission. And the second thing is a couple of verses later on in chapter 10. What is it that he is to do as a prophet to the nation? Well, he is to wield the word of God in such a way that he completely reforms the political landscape. Uh, Nations will literally rise and fall as a result of his words. And you see it there in the verse. He is to be put over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. And those six verbs are the key things that the word of God does in the book of Jeremiah. Fundamentally, it tears nations down and it builds them up. And it happens on a global scale. Jeremiah is a very global book. But in a book like Jeremiah, longest book in the Bible, it's very easy to lose sight of that. Because up until now, if you've been tracking with us all of this semester, in our reading of Jeremiah, the words of the prophet have almost exclusively been focused on one nation in particular, the nation of Judah. We're in kind of 44 chapters so far, 52 chapters, and almost all of them have been about the destruction of this one nation until we get to chapter 45 and 46. 
Because it's here that the viewpoint changes and expands and dramatically kind of envelops the whole of the known world. And finally, finally, we find out Jeremiah, the prophet to the nations, is speaking to those nations. So in terms of where we are in the book, you might remember this slide from last week. We are in the fourth and final movement of Jeremiah. In that first movement, judgment is threatened. And when we get to kind of the halfway point of the book, chapter 25, the three movements that follow, it's all about judgment being confirmed and executed. And we saw uh, last week that those three movements are not kind of different things in history, but actually the same events played out, but from different points of view. So last week we saw movement three uh, from the perspective of Judah as Judah is destroyed. But this week, chapters 45 to 51, we see the same word of God that destroys Judah now destroy the nations of the world. Now, this section in Jeremiah is often called the oracles against the nations uh, because it is just one steady stream of prophetic word after prophetic word, oracle after oracle, addressing the nation after nation after nation, declaring that it's not just Judah, but they too stand under the judgment of God and they too will be destroyed. So this is a pretty depressing part of Jeremiah because we see the word of God take effect finally on a global scale. And we see it doing the two things that we were led to believe it would do in all the way in chapter one. We see the word of God destroy the nations. And then second of all, we see the word of God build God's nation. And we see both of those uh, in our chapters today. We're going to be doing a bit more of a jumping around than usual, so just be prepared for that. Uh, But let's start with the word of God destroying the nations, uh, and let's start with the guilt of the nations. Because the reason that God destroys them is because they are guilty, guilty of great sin. They are, by definition, those who do not know God, and so they live in a way that is not pleasing to God. At the heart of their sin was idolatry, this this little thing where they worshipped other gods instead of the true God. But that led to a whole host of other sinful practices like injustice, oppression, things that we've seen all throughout Jeremiah. But but worst of all, child sacrifice. Uh, But the thing, the sin that God singles out more than any of the other sins that we've seen uh, in Jeremiah is the sin of devouring his people. Uh, So, for example, chapter 50, verse 6, and I don't have this one up on the screen. You have to look at this one yourself. Chapter 50, verse 6 in today's reading, God says, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray and caused them to roam on the mountains. They wandered over mountain and hill and forgot their own resting place. Whoever found them devoured them. Their enemies, this is the nations God is speaking about, the enemies said, we are not guilty for they sinned against the Lord, their verdant pasture, the Lord, the hope of their ancestors. And this, in God's opinion, is a grievous sin because to mess with God's people is to mess with God. Now, the nations, they thought they could get away with it, right, because Judah deserved it. But it's sort of like punching a jerk in the face, you know, like me, that guy at the party. It's like, this guy really just needs a punch in the face. Everyone will be happier about it. Seems like a good idea at the time. You might even be justified, but you still have to answer for your actions. And this isn't just a punch at a party. This is touching the heritage of the God of all the earth. And so what God resolves to do is destroy the nations who have attacked his people. And in doing so, he decides to give them a punishment. Um, We see that punishment there in our headings in the outline. It is the drinking of the cup of God's wrath. 
Now, for those of you in first year groups, this image should be familiar to you because a couple of weeks ago you saw Jesus drink this cup as well. He talked about it in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14, but then he drank it on the cross. Uh, This is the image and one of the places in the Old Testament where it comes from. Uh, So have a look with me. This is in Jeremiah chapter 25. Again, you'll have to turn to this one. So you have to do some mass. 50 minus 25 is 25. Great. All right. Good. Uh, Let's head over to Jeremiah chapter 25. Uh, And we're going to look at verse 15. This is where we see the image, the punishment that God gives to the devouring nations. Uh, Let's have a look. Chapter 25, verse 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among you. So I took the cup from the Lord's hands and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it. Now skim your eyes down and have a look from verse 18 and onwards. It starts not with the nations, but with his own nation, Jerusalem, the towns of Judah, its kings and officials. And they're made a ruin and an object of horror and scorn, a curse as they are today. And then it basically systematically works its way through all the nations of the earth. We won't read them all, but it starts with Egypt. It ends cryptically with the king of Sheshach, which is another way of saying the king of Babylon. But the thing to understand is that the judgment of the earth begins with the judgment of God's people. And as we see here, it sweeps out like a tide and destroys everything. It's like God drops a nuclear bomb on his own city And we see that kind of wall of destruction branch out from ground zero. And one by one, as each of the nations around them looks on, they are swept away by the wave of destruction that emanates from Jerusalem. And the reason I'm showing this to you in chapter 25 is because what it describes in general and in brief, we see in detail in our section today. And so it's just the fastest way to kind of see this pattern go out. Uh, But this is where we kind of get a bit funky and I've never done this before. I've wanted to do this for a couple of years now, but never really had an excuse. Um, Let's have a look at what happens. So here's my um, uh, map, not original. Uh, And if it makes you feel better, I can put something like this here. Um, Stock photo. Um, All right, cool. Now I'm with the Gen Zers. Um, You can see Judah there in the black. The little star is Jerusalem. Uh, It's pretty tiny, uh, but that's okay. That's what's going to happen. And let's just map uh, what the oracles to the nations, chapter 46 to 51, look like, because we're not going to look at them in detail. Now, it begins with Egypt. There's about 28 verses or so uh, in chapter 46. So Egypt is sort of like this area here. Um, We'll put that there. But then it moves in chapter 47 to Philistia. These are the Philistines. These are the nasty guys uh, like Goliath. And so they're kind of sea people. They kind of landed here. And I'll just put PH there for them. Um, We move on to chapter 48. And I'll choose pink because why not? uh, To Moab. Um, And Moab is here. Remember, it was one of the incestuous ancestors of of Lot and his daughters. And so we'll put Moab along. Uh, But then the tide just keeps going. You hit chapter 59 and then things start to pick up their pace. You get Ammon, which is just to the north of Moab. You've then got Edom, um, which was Esau. So they separated a lot earlier, but here's Edom. Uh, Moving through to Damascus, which was the capital of Syria, which is sort of like this section here at the moment. So we'll just put in Syria there. Um, To Kedar, these guys were desert people and kind of weird kind of tribes folk. And so they're kind of out here somewhere. You don't really know because they roamed, they didn't have boundaries. Um, All the way up to Elam, 
which was weirdly all the way over here, kind of near the water. This whole area was like a fertile crescent. And then finally, chapter 50 and 51, a massive swathe of it um, is given over to Babylon. And Babylon is here. And one of the things I hope you can see is as those chapters progress, do you see the kind of direction? It's almost as if a storm front has started here and it has ploughed all the way through across the known world as God judges the world. And that's how the end of Jeremiah, of the fourth minute of Jeremiah, kind of comes to be. All the nations of the known world have been confronted by this wave of judgment and are now no more. Now, before we move on, it pays careful attention to see how God does this. And I don't know whether you notice it in chapter 25. He says that he will bring a sword upon them. See, God doesn't kind of rain down supernatural blasts from above like he did to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis. He actually uses an earthly agent. And that agent is Babylon. And so we see this in a whole bunch of different places, but one of them is in Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 7, uh, where God says Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hands. See that, that, that metaphor again? She made the whole earth drunk. The nations drank her wine. Therefore, they have now gone mad. A little bit later on in that chapter, chapter 51, verse 20, God describes Babylon as his war club, uh, the means by which he shatters the nations. But the thing to get about all of this is even though Babylon were the agents of God's justice in the world, they too were guilty. And he reserves his most violent and devastating words for them. So some of the nations only get six verses. Ammon really kind of didn't even get a look in. But Babylon gets two whole chapters. What was it that they did? Well, they destroyed the nation of Judah. Now have a look again in our reading, chapter 50, verse 17. Chapter 50, verse 17. Israel is a scattered flock. Here's that sheep imagery again, that lions have chased away. The first to devour them was the king of Assyria. The last to crush their bones was Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. I will punish the king of Babylon and his land as I punish the king of Assyria. See, all those other nations that I showed you up on the screen just before had taken bites out of Judah. But it was Babylon that had ripped that nation to pieces. They marched in, leveled the ground, destroyed God's temple. And so after two long chapters of prophetic doom, Jeremiah writes it all down on a scroll. This is the end of chapter 51. And get this, he sends somebody to Babylon with a scroll and he's to read the scroll out loud. And when he's finished, he's to tie a stone to that scroll and then throw it into the Euphrates River. And his final word to the nation, which is the final verse of chapter 51, is this. It's verse 64. As he throws that scroll of judgment into the water, he says, So will Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster I will bring on her, and her people will fall. And if you're looking there, you'll see that there's a few more words to that chapter. It says, The words of Jeremiah end here. Now, there is another chapter But do you see the finality of God's destruction of the nations? It sinks to the bottom and never comes back up. It is a work both thorough and complete. The word of God destroys the nations. But that's only half of what the word of the Lord does in these chapters. We shouldn't surprise us. We've already seen it in chapter one. Because the word of the Lord doesn't just destroy, it builds up. 
And it's as if when that stone is thrown and sinks into the water and the water goes still, after a time, something bubbles up to the surface. And surprise, surprise, it's the nation of Judah. Because remember Jeremiah's commission. It's not just tearing down, but building up. And the thing that emerges from the wreckage, that carnage that sweeps across the known world, is God's people, renewed and restored. It's almost like going uh, to ground zero after a nuclear bomb falls. And you've seen these pictures, right? Uh, this is, uh, I think, Nagasaki. Uh, it's, it's just horrible. Like, nothing is left. Uh, that's a black and white picture, but I guarantee you that it would be black and white when you turned up to have a look at it. Nothing, absolutely nothing survives. But it's almost as if in the, in the wreckage of the nations of God as he's judged the world, you look in closely and amidst the ash and the dust right in the middle, in the place that you would last expect to see it, you see a leafy green plant. And here's the difference, I think, between the nations and God's nation. It's not that there's life after death. Uh, sorry, let me rephrase that. There is no life after judgment for the nations. But for the people of God, there is. Uh, and you see this in a bunch of places, but this is one of them. Uh, again, this is the beginning of our section today in Jeremiah 46, verse 28. God is speaking to Egypt. But then he changed tack and he says, Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, for I am with you, declares the Lord. Though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only in due measure. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. You see, Judah sins, doesn't escape punishment, but the nature of her punishment is not the same as the nature of the punishment of the nations. It's a discipline, a discipline that looks forward to the future with hope. And what is that hope? Well, we saw it in today's reading. Judah, uprooted by the word of God, cast into exile, will be gathered back to him and planted by that same word. So have another look at chapter 50, verse 17 again. Chapter 50, verse 17. Israel is a scattered flock. You know that they're devoured. King of Assyria, Nebuchadnezzar crushes their bones. Uh, They'll punish Babylon. But have a look at verse 19. But I will bring Israel back to their own pasture and they will graze on Carmel and Bashan. Their appetite will be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and Gilead. In those days at that time, declares the Lord, Search will be made for Israel's guilt, and there will be none for the sins of Judah, but, for none, but none will be found, for I will forgive the remnant I spare. Don't miss the metaphor here. Israel is a lamb torn to shreds, eaten and in the belly of the beast. And on the day that God punishes Babylon, they're restored to their pasture alive and whole. This is a resurrection. And it's more than that because they aren't just kind of restored back to factory settings. They're now sinless. The very thing that had sent them into exile in the first place can no longer be found. And this is good news for Israel, isn't it? Because if they're sinless now, then they never need to fear the retribution of God again. This is a nation that can never rebel against God, never face his judgment, will always be established and planted, never to be removed And that's the promise that God gives his people. But here's where things start to get complicated. The paradox of these chapters is that what is good news for the nation of Israel, notice I'm using the word Israel here, Judah and Israel have now been formed back together as the one people of God before they were severed in history. What is good news for Israel is now also good news for the nations. 
because the new Israel becomes a source of hope for them. Now, let's try and work this one out, because one of the confusing things about these chapters is that in the midst of God's declaration that he will completely destroy the nations, he also promises them that they won't be. Uh, So here's that verse again from chapter 46, where he, he says, I'll completely destroy everyone, but I won't completely destroy you. Here's what he says two verses before that to Egypt. Later, however, Egypt will be inhabited as in times past. And this isn't the only time God does this in these chapters. He says it to Moab, he says it to Ammon, and he says it to Elam as well. And so what is it, God? There's a bit of schizophrenia, it seems, going on here. Is it destruction or is it building? Word of God, make up your mind. And the way that we have to resolve this tension is to understand that these promises of future restoration to the nations are fulfilled not by building up the nation's plural, just kind of turning back to their own land and giving them back their sovereignty and, you know, here, here's a new government and we'll put up some more fences and that way people can't come in any longer. It's not like a new Egypt and a new Moab and a, and a new Ammon. It's by grafting those nations in to the new people of Israel, the only nation that survives the destruction of God. Now, we don't see this in our section, but we do see it earlier in Jeremiah chapter 12. And I've got it here up on the screen for you. It was a bit enigmatic when we went through it, so we just kind of left it to the keeper, but now we get to pick it up. This is what it says. This is what the Lord says. As for all my wicked neighbours who seize the inheritance I gave my people Israel, I will uproot them from their lands and I'll uproot the people of Judah from among them. But after I uproot them, I will again have compassion and bring each of them back to their own inheritance in their own country. This is the kind of the promises we see in the oracles against the nations. But get this. This is the key. Verse 16. And if they learn well the ways of my people and swear by my name, saying as surely as the Lord lives, even as they once taught my people to swear by Baal, then they will be established among my people. But if any nation does not listen, I will, here's that word again, completely uproot and destroy it, declares the Lord. So do you see what keeps the nations planted? They learn the ways of God's people and swear by his name. And in doing so, at the end of verse 16 there, they will be established, not next to my people, but among them. And so here in Jeremiah, even as we see this picture of absolute destruction against sin spread across the known world, we see a picture of mercy and hope, not just for God's own people, but for people from all nations. But critically, it's one that can only be taken a hold of by joining that specific people that God builds. And so the new Israel that God creates, that's the hope of the world. That's the hope for you and me. And that's why in the oracle against Babylon, there are multiple calls for Israel and the nations to flee Babylon and get the heck to Jerusalem. Because remember where all these nations are at the end of chapter 51, including Judah. They're all in the belly of the beast. Babylon has marched across the known world and has swallowed them all up and devoured them and and made them a part of his own empire. And so by the time you get to the end of the oracles, all you have is two entities left. You've got big bad Babylon who is about to be judged and you've got Israel. And so Babylon becomes the symbol of the nations in revolt against God and his people destined for complete destruction. And you've got Israel, the restored people of God, the only hope for the world the ones that stand under the judgment of God. And what Jeremiah says to them and to us is this, get out. Chapter 51, verse 6, flee from Babylon, run for your lives, do not be destroyed because of her sins. And we don't do much fleeing in our life. 
I don't think. We're in the West. Uh, I don't think you ever really flee from anything, do you? You're just kind of like going to saunter out. The closest I can think of is actually like a fire drill. Um, and so I kind of thought, where do you see that? And I thought, the UWA colleges. And so I know some of you guys have been there before. You've been rocking up. It's like, you know, probably 11 o'clock at night. And somebody uses a toaster and then that's it. The alarm goes off, you've got fire engines coming and 500 of you have to get up and leave the place of danger because it's going to burn down very, very soon. And what do you do? You flee from it to a place of safety, a designated marshalling zone and that sort of thing. And you kind of scoff and shake your heads. But one day, just one day, that toast is going to spontaneously combust. It's going to set up a flame. It's going to burn through all of cats. It'll be depressing. Uh, But it's at that point that you understand the metaphor, right? You flee from the place that is falling down around you to the one place of safety. And that's what the call of these chapters is today. It is to flee. Flee the evil nation before the judgment falls on it like a hammer and it's no more. But how do we do that? Because the last I looked, Babylon existed over 2,000 years ago and God's oracle came true. It was destroyed. Well, this is where things get even more complex, so track with me. We need to understand how Babylon is used as a symbol in the New Testament. Because there's kind of two uses of Babylon in the Bible. You've got historic Babylon, like in Jeremiah, and you've got symbolic Babylon, what it comes to represent. Uh, And in the symbolic Babylon, we see it's taken up in the pages of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, and it turns up right at the end of that book. So it's the end of the Bible, the end of the story of God. And what we see there is a great city arise and stand in opposition to the coming kingdom of Jesus. It's pictured as a prostitute. She's riding a beast. She's filled with sexual immorality and idolatry. And critically, she's holding a golden cup. And like the Babylon of history, we're told that all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. And she has become the source of corruption and sin to all the nations of the world. And what this Babylon represents in Revelation is a world in rebellion against God and the people he's created. And so we get to the end of the Bible, the end of God's story. And what do we see? The same two entities. It's Babylon and it's Israel. And in the book of Revelation, the end of history comes about when Jesus turns up on a white horse and destroys Babylon and rescues the people of God. It's the nuclear bomb and the plant all over again, yeah? Except that instead of an isolated moment in history, like in Jeremiah's time, this is the end of human history. And so the message to Christians who read Revelation is the same as the message to the exiles in Babylon as they read Jeremiah. You're seeing how the pattern works. We're seeing it in Jeremiah. It expands out to all of life and the world and history over here in Revelation for us today. They are told that when God turns up to judge Babylon, you are to get the heck out, flee to Jerusalem and go to where God will build you up as a nation, never to be torn down again. Now, for the exiles in Babylon, that command had a very physical response. They had some very clear instruction. Seventy years in, you're going to be released. You are to leave that land and head to Jerusalem. God will build you up. But like we've been seeing, it's not as simple for us because God is not operating like there's a political nation now. And so as soon as we kind of see some weird stars in the sky or something, we've got to head to to, to Israel and kind of the Middle East right now. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is that what happened in the political nation of Judah and the political nations of the world, that's a historic foreshadowing and pattern of what's going to happen globally at the end of time. So what does that mean 
for us today? Well, like I said, it's a complex argument that ends in a very simple application. We flee Babylon. We get out of anything in the world that would have us turn our back on Jesus. So if you're not a Christian here today, I'm really glad you're here. Uh, Good on you for coming and trying to get through this big chunk of Jeremiah. Now, it actually looks really simple for you if you're not a follower of Jesus. Become a follower of Jesus. Decide to follow him. Go to the one whom God appoints as the head of his redeemed, planted, immovable people. Uh, To borrow from another prophet, uh, Isaiah, he happened 100 years earlier in chapter 11. He tells us that Jesus is like a banner to the nations. That's the phrase that he uses. And if you don't know what that means, in medieval warfare, if your army's formations broke, you needed to regroup. And so what would happen is somebody would raise up a banner. And as soon as you saw the banner and you heard the trumpet that was blown, you would run to that banner as a place of safety and a place of hope where all your mates would be with their swords as well. It was a rallying point. And the picture that the Bible gives us is of Jesus outside the gates of evil Babylon, the world in rebellion. And he raises his banner and anyone who streams out of that city and comes and joins him and his army will receive forgiveness and find salvation and avoid the judgment that he is about to bring on that city, that he's about to bring on the world. That's what it is to flee Babylon. You put your faith and trust in Jesus. You come out of the city and follow him. But what about if you're already a Christian? You've already kind of been grafted in from the nations. Well, you've got to remember that Jeremiah was not just written to the faithless, but to the faithful. You see, the temptation for those of us who live in exile in Babylon, surrounded by a culture that is completely antithetical to God, his law, his ways, that wants to have nothing to do with him. The temptation for us as we live in this world who hates God is to live like them rather than live differently to them. And you know that, Paul, right? We face it every day. Because the Christian is in the exact same situation. We are in exile, living in a world in opposition to God, waiting for God to turn up to judge the world and draw us from the wreckage and move us into the new creation. And so for us as believers of Jesus Christ, the daily choice and the daily battle is to come out of Babylon rather than choose to live like Babylon. And kind of level, that's just really hard. I don't think there's a day that goes by where I don't, feel like I, I, just, I just want to live like I'm in spiritual Babylon rather than in spiritual Israel. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not giving permission to feel that way, but that is a reality of living in a sinful body as we seek after Jesus. There is always a pull. And whether it's sex and relationships or fooling around, whether it's money and owning houses and, 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 and having security, or whether it's power and seeking influence and popularity or impact on the world, having a career, whatever it is, whatever the influences that say you should live for you and this is what's going to fulfill you and make your life meaningful, there will always be something that pulls you back into that city and away from the banner of Jesus and the hope of new Israel. And what God calls us to do is to be aware of those dangers, not seduced by those dangers, but instead hold firmly to Jesus, who is your only hope through judgment. And in doing so, live holy lives as you wait for him to return. Because at the end of the day, that is what God is doing in the world. His word is destroying and building up, uprooting and planting, but it's not in the way that you think. It's not Russia and Ukraine. It's not a civil war in the US. It's not China versus the rest. He is redrawing political lines as spiritual lines. And he's calling people from all nations, not just physical Israel, but physical Australia. 
physical Russia and Ukraine and the US and China. And he's drawing them all into a new nation that is not of this world, one that is ruled by Jesus and one that will emerge victorious and prosperous, alive and whole and critically sinless when Jesus comes to judge the world. And if you're not a Christian, that is what he offers you. Inclusion in that reality. And if you are a Christian, that's what he's already done in you. And so the next time you watch the news or you look out about around you and you ask the question, what is it that God is doing in this world? Don't be disturbed. Because whether a nation is prosperous or at war, God is doing the same thing today that he's been doing for the last 2,000 years. He's saving for himself a people who will live in peace for all of time untouched by the ravages of sin because they will be dealt with, judged and destroyed. What I want to say is I am so glad that I'm a part of that. Are you as well?